0: please be seated. Such a powerful hymn. And you notice each verse of that hymn mentions those moments in life where we're having a hard time connecting with God. My weary soul, my flickering torch, pain, and lay in dust life's glory, dead. I need to confess to you that for the last few weeks and months, The presence of God has not seemed as real to me. I have to tell you that as a preacher, that's an odd kind of feeling, like, and one of the things I reflect on with other pastors is, you don't get up and say that on a Sunday morning, like, I'm sorry, folks, but I'm just not feeling God today, right? You don't want to come to church and hear that, but there are times when the preacher feels it and So, even last weekend, I'm going like, maybe it's Ezekiel. Maybe everybody's tired of Ezekiel, and I'm tired of Ezekiel. But on the other hand, each week I've really seen some fresh things in the book of Ezekiel. So, all that to say, last Monday, I'm going like, okay, just one more week. Let's get through these nine kind of laborious chapters of Ezekiel, then we can move on to somewhere else. Linda and I had already planned a day of prayer for Monday afternoon. And so, Uh, About noon, we drove down to Baker's Mountain and took some time around a picnic table, some alone, some together, and just prayed. But it wasn't like a lot of, you know, energy. It was like, I I just need to be alone with the Lord. And on the way back from Baker's Mountain, got a text from Pastor Paul Cummings, my colleague. And that was followed by a call that I missed on my phone because my phone had been off during the prayer time. And in the car, and then he called Linda's phone. And when Paul is calling repeated times, I'm going like something's up. And it didn't take long before we realized what most of you have heard since then, that a little 11-week-old baby in our church had died of SIDS. And Paul was trying to get a hold of me to let me know what was happening. So, The beginning of my week was centered around let's get through Ezekiel. And the middle portion of my week was definitely focused on the needs of this family. And then yesterday, I come back to sit down and write the sermon for today on Ezekiel chapter 48. So my week was kind of like that as a sandwich. And I'll come back to this at the end, but I want to tell you that yesterday and today in planning to preach this particular message on this text on this Sunday, I have experienced the presence of God in a way that I really haven't felt or experienced it for months. So it was a week of helping a family get through the most unthinkable Uh, tragedy that most parents can imagine when a child dies, and it doesn't really even matter how old the child is, every parent knows the death of a child is terrifying and horrible, and I'm looking at some families in the sanctuary who know exactly what I'm talking about. When I preached the funeral meditation, I borrowed from the words of the parents through the week, And Alan Williams, the dad, had said in the hospital, when we were in a small room with just a few friends and close family, and I prayed, and honestly, I don't even remember what I said, but then Alan said, could I pray? Of course. And he could basically get out um, only four words, repeated a couple times, God, we trust you. And then his wife, Diana, had asked me when we were planning the funeral service, uh, to preach in such a way that it would give people an opportunity to come to know Jesus. Because something good then would come out of this terrible tragedy. And so I framed my funeral meditation around the question, why, why we believe? Like, why would you say that a funeral of an 11-week-old baby would be a chance to believe? Now, the reason that I have to connect today's uh, sermon to this story of grief is because Ezekiel basically comes to that same place at the end of his book. And his conclusion is, the Lord is there. Why, when Ezekiel is still dealing with the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, would he end his book? Nothing's changed. Jerusalem still lies in ruins. Ezekiel is still 700 miles away in Babylon. And if you recall, one of the stories in the book, Ezekiel's wife died. She doesn't come back to life, and he doesn't remarry in the book. Ezekiel's still a young widower. And when you think about what's happened back in Jerusalem, I compared it one week to 9-11. I'm not even sure that's strong enough. It might be more appropriate to compare it to Hiroshima. So think about 14 years after Hiroshima. Nothing is left in the city. So imagine you're living in America, and you had family and friends who died there or were close enough to be deeply impacted by it. And you've seen pictures on television for 14 years. Ezekiel didn't have television, but he would have heard reports about the leveling of the city. Nothing's changed circumstantially. And yet Ezekiel wants you to hold on at the end of his book. He's conveying that to his fellow Jews. The Lord is there. So without introduction, let me take you to the very end of the book of Ezekiel that Pastor Laurie just read for us a few moments ago. And if you haven't been with us in Ezekiel, or you know you just sort of uh, this is your first visit at Corinth, then you may go like, what's this all about? Or even if you haven't read the last nine chapters, it's a rather odd place to start a scripture reading. So sometimes we like to preach verse by verse, and I kind of did that uh, last week. If I were to do verse by verse or even summarize in a few key points, it would be a very short sermon today based on what Pastor Lori read. Here's the summary. The city, and you don't even know what city it is, the city is a square, and it's about a mile and a half on each side, six miles all the way around. And it has 12 gates, and the 12 gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. Reuben, Judah, Levi, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And the name of the city will be, the Lord is there. In Hebrew, Yahweh Shammah, or Adonai Shammah, the Lord is there. I'm telling you, that's all that's in that text. So what am I going to do with that? If you're a little tired of Ezekiel and all of his visions, the good news is this is the last week. <laughs> all right? Next week we get to what are called the Psalms of Ascent in uh, the book of Psalms, and they are the Psalms where people are traveling up to worship in Jerusalem, and we're going to spend four weeks on the Psalms of Ascent. But before we get into what is he, what's going on in Ezekiel here at the end of the book, let me remind you about two important facts concerning Ezekiel that we've talked about before. Number one, Ezekiel was trained as a priest. Until age 25, his assumption was that the temple that at that time was still functioning would be where he would spend his career. He would teach people the word of God. He would offer the sacrifices in the temple. He would be the way that people connected to God, but they would do it there at the temple in Jerusalem. Now it's been leveled and raised and burned. And he's 700 miles away, and it's been 25 years since he left, so he's age 50, 20 years since he got his call to be a prophet, and 14 years since the fall of Jerusalem. Second fact I want you to remember about Ezekiel is he loves visuals and theater. He sometimes uses words, but not always. On one occasion in the book, instead of saying, there's going to be a long siege by the Babylonians, he just laid down on his side for over a year and watched a little model of the city. Like, no words. When his wife died, he didn't say to people, you know what, Uh, there's going to be so much grief that you're not going to be able to express it. He just went around the next day normally. Everybody knew his wife died. They're going like, why aren't you mourning? Ezekiel loves this theater, right? And then when he describes at the beginning of the book, and we're going to come back to this at the end of the service with a final song about Ezekiel, he doesn't say God is everywhere and he can see everything. He describes living creatures and wheels within wheels that are intersecting and have eyes all around. So if Ezekiel could have virtual reality technology, he would love it. He would love for all of you to put glasses on and see what Ezekiel sees. He loves visuals. So these two facts about Ezekiel, that he's a priest and that he loves visuals, coalesce in this final vision in his book that starts at chapter 40 and goes through chapter 48. And if you couldn't follow the last six verses of the book, just be glad I didn't read you the last nine chapters, because that's the whole uh, ending vision of the book. However, I'm going to review it for you briefly. The beginning of chapter 40, Ezekiel dates his vision. I've already given you those dates. And he says he's transported to a very high mountain in Israel, There aren't that many high mountains in Israel, so we don't even think like he's on the Mount of Olives. That's not high enough. But from there, and at that point, he meets a tour guide, and he describes the tour guide as having a bronze face. I haven't found in any of my commentaries why that's significant, so I'm just gonna call him Ezekiel's tour guide from Pakistan, all right? So you can kind of visualize the guy. He's got a dark face, and he's gonna take him around now what he needs to see. Interestingly enough, in the first two chapters of the vision, the tour guide never talks except twice. He briefly says, this is the most holy place, and this is the altar, uh, this is the table that is before the Lord. So for two chapters, all we get is an accounting of what the tour guide shows Ezekiel, but he does it with two props in his hand. I brought one of them. One of his props is a measuring rod. And we know from his measurements that it's about 10 feet long. So I wouldn't twirl it because the choir would get nervous any faster than this. But like the guy just walks around with this big old pole and... What did I just hit? I've never hit that thing before. (laughs) The, the guy just walks around with this and he measures different things. He measures the wall, how high it is. He measures the wall, how deep it is. He measures the gates. He measures the alcoves. He measures the porticos. He even measures the door jams. And he just basically walks around. But what, he, what Ezekiel sees as he walks around, I'm going to put up on the screen one artist's rendition. And so what he's measuring is the most dramatic and amazing temple that Ezekiel ever could have imagined. So this is an incredibly beautiful temple, and it takes Ezekiel several chapters to describe it. I don't know what I do with this now. Put it back down. By the way, his other prop was a, a, a rope, a linen cord, and we don't know how long it is, and it never actually comes back in the story. But presumably, it is to measure the longer distances, like when he tells you how far it is around the city. So Ezekiel is brought to the east gate of the temple in chapter forty-three. And the last time he was there, the glory of God had departed. It was the huge turning moment, turning point in the book of Ezekiel because God's glory, his presence had dwelt there and Ezekiel dramatically describes how the glory moved up over the threshold and onto the Mount of Olives outside the city. So now Ezekiel is brought back there again and he both hears and sees the glory of God returning to the temple. He describes the sound as the roar of rushing waters. Think Niagara Falls. He's hearing that sound, and he describes this radiance, this luminescent cloud. So as the glory now moves back into the temple and fills the temple, this temple that we've seen, it's both brightness and thundering noise. And then in the rest of chapter 43 and chapter 44, the measuring rod comes back out again and measures the altar where the sacrifices will be made that part of the vision ends with the Lord saying, the priests are to present your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar. Then I will accept you, declares the sovereign Lord. Don't miss that. So part of what happens in this temple is that the sacrifices are restored so that God can accept his people again who had been rejected. And then in chapters 45 through 48 the remainder of the book and the vision extends Ezekiel's vision beyond the temple to the city and even the whole land of Israel so let's put that last slide up and Ezekiel sees there that the The tribes of Israel all get an even portion. They get an equal portion. It's described almost like it is here instead of natural boundaries, like everybody's going to get their fair share in this city. And he describes a river that starts with a trickle underneath the temple and winds up with a, a river so wide and so deep that by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, you can't even swim in it. It's way over his head, and it's of water that is not only fresh water, but it's so fresh it makes the Dead Sea live again. It makes the Dead Sea alive again. I don't know if you've ever been to the Dead Sea. I've been there twice, but, you know, for who knows how long, how many Thousands or millions of years nothing can live in the Dead Sea literally nothing It's why it's so full of minerals because there's no outlet to it So this water that flows from the temple brings life even to the Dead Sea This is almost a valley of dry bones vision kind of miracle again And fruit trees grow along either side of the river and Ezekiel sees all of this So there's equality and there's justice and then finally we get to the passage that we read where Ezekiel describes these 12 gates around a perfectly square city on a mountain. And they're described as exits. And the idea is that people can come in to offer their sacrifices. They can go home and rest. It's 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 an image of security and peace and equality and access and abundance that is in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, but is also an image of worship like we are back in touch with God again. It's an an image of forgiveness. So everything you ever craved, Ezekiel, remember he's a priest, let me show you and you describe for people what in your mind as a 6th century priest would be the absolutely ideal indication and visual representation of the presence of God. So that's what this vision is. Everything Ezekiel's priestly heart could have imagined and more. It reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine. That's what Ezekiel sees. So I don't at all want to diminish the power of temple and altar, but I would say it is what, what it would be to you if you're a chef and you are taken on a tour of the best kitchen ever built, or you are a golfer, and it's the best golf course ever created anywhere in the world, or you're an engineer, and you watch a building develop that has the finest structure ever conceived by man, or you're a car dealer, and this is the strongest, uh, fastest, best, most comfortable car, and it has your brand on it, And this is what it's doing for Ezekiel emotionally. He's saying, this is the most amazing thing possible, and God has shown it to me. So then the question comes, what does his vision have to do with you and me? Well, as you can imagine, and as I've said the last couple of weeks, there are different theories that people have about Ezekiel's visions, plural, of restoration, from the shepherds to the Valley of Dry Bones and now to the reformed temple. And the main division among the theories is whether we are to take Ezekiel's vision literally. That is to say, was it God's plan through Ezekiel either to rebuild the the temple that was demolished exactly according to that plan, or is there some future in which before or after the return of Christ there will be built exactly this temple? And I respect that view a lot because it's it's trying to take Scripture very seriously. So if that's your view, and I and I've said this a couple times in the last couple weeks, it's fine with me. I don't need to change that. But after my study this week, I've decided it's not my view. So I had to get to this end, uh, this part of Ezekiel before I would admit that to you. It's not my view that that it is uh, it is literally going to be built in the future, or that it ever was intended to be, and I'll tell you why. When the people of Israel come back from captivity, nobody says, hey, we've got the blueprint on which we're going to build the restored temple. Nobody says that. When Herod, in the first century B.C., expands that temple and actually creates the temple mount that was dramatic, it's not as big as, nor does it follow the design of, Ezekiel's temple. And when Jesus says, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in fact it was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans, Jesus doesn't say it's so that we can build the temple that Ezekiel envisioned. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is there a direct reference to this temple. There is, however, in the New Testament, a vision that is even grander and greater and more glorious at the end of the book of Revelation. And that, rather than being a square city, is a cubic city. And rather than having all of these features in it, it actually has streets of gold that you're familiar with and gates of pearl. And it's amazing. And John is doing in the book of Revelation, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was doing back through Ezekiel. He's taking whatever your ideal is, and in the first century world, it would have been a perfectly cubed city with all of that majestic, precious metal and stone in it, John is doing exactly the same thing and saying you still have to look forward to the perfect place. And one of the things that John says is in that city there will be no temple for the Lord God and the Lamb will be the temple. Now the word temple is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's used in primarily two ways. Number one, the word temple and everything associated with it is directly applied to Jesus. And so, from the beginning of John's gospel, it says, and the word was made flesh and templed among us, or tabernacled among us, pitched his holy tent among us. Jesus is the temple of God. And the writer of Hebrews repeatedly uses words like altar and sacrifice, not to say, and by the way, one day they're going to be reinstituted, like why do you need to reinstitute sacrifices for any reason, even during the millennial age, if you've already had Jesus who ended sacrifice forever. So what we have positively is a vision of Jesus being the answer to the vision of the temple and that God will be there. And Jesus says at the very end of his ministry as he commissions his disciples, and lo, what? I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So one way in which this is fulfilled is in Jesus that he is always with you. But there's an even I won't say more powerful. There's a different way in which the New Testament uses the word temple that has become so powerful for me me this week. And that is that Paul says, you believers in Jesus are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the way in which God shows up. He tabernacles, he dwells among men and women. You represent the presence of God, the there-ness of God. That's in you. And that's what I have witnessed this past week. I'll say again, though, if you have the other interpretation, there's going to be a literal uh, temple. There's nothing about what I'm going to say that needs to take that away from you. Okay? Like, it can still be that. But I just want to say that what I have experienced this week on a very personal and powerful level is the temple of God among human beings in the church of Jesus Christ. So what have we seen about Ezekiel all through his book? We've seen the power of God. We've seen the glory of God. We've seen the justice of God, that he always does what's right. We've seen the love and mercy of God. We've seen the desire of God for repentance when people turn away from Him. And we have seen the the promise and provision of restoration through faithful leaders. So we have seen that God always restores hope and life to His people. So ultimately, the book of Ezekiel is about that. The last four words are a retrospect on the whole book. That God, the God of glory and love and promise, He is there wherever the temple is. And this is where, for me, experiencing the temple of God was so powerful. What the church needs today is not bigger buildings or more programs or more better vision statements or plans for the future. What we need is... God to show up and we as believers need to know this God who whom Ezekiel describes over and over again in his book and then we need to be the representation of that God to the world around us so that when they see us they see the temple of God we need to be those who in the way that we speak and act and love in the use of our hands and ears and eyes when people encounter us, they go, the Lord is here because they've witnessed us. And that's what happened this week. On Monday night, when I went to meet with the family in a small waiting room, it wasn't long until not only family, but the friends that were closest to Alan and Diana, their life group at church, showed up. And they didn't say much of anything, but they wept, and they hugged, and they touched, and they listened. And let me tell you, the Lord was there in that moment through the hands and feet and eyes and ears of those who loved them. And then there were casseroles, and there were Facebook posts, and there were places in which the whole community, but especially the church community, just gathered around them and loved them. And then I have to tell you that even though Thursday's funeral was one of the most difficult that I've ever had to preach, every funeral where I'm looking at the parents during the service is a very challenging funeral to preach. But now we have an 11-week-old baby who is perfectly healthy on Monday afternoon, and we're putting him in the ground on Thursday. And even though even though it was one of the most difficult services I've ever had to preach, not just from what I felt, but from what people told me, the presence of God was there. God showed up in his people, he showed up in that place, and partly because of that, as I came to the weekend, rather than the way I felt for a number of weeks before, like I've got to somehow drum up a sense of the presence of God, instead I, wo- I Came to my office yesterday, and I walk into church this morning like I know God is there, and He's got something to say to us today. And you know what I realized? If I can put it into one sentence, when you can't feel the presence of God, be the presence of God to someone else. When you can't feel the presence of God, be the presence of God. And those moments where we're either just feeling cold and dry, and lifeless, or those moments when we ourselves are going through incredible difficulties. And don't get me wrong, nothing about what I said on Thursday or today would help Alan and Diana get over it. You don't get over it when you lose a child, and they will have moments that are so terribly challenging, and difficult, and dry for them, and agonizing for them. But still, this is what we do as the body of Christ. Do you have enough of who God is in you transforming you so that when you show up whether it's a small disaster or even incredible joy or it's a terrible tragedy when you show up God is actually showing up in you and through you that's the challenge for us the people of God to be his living temple to be to others the fact that the Lord is there would you pray with me please And maybe you already are thinking of someone or some situation where you know somebody's feeling alone or disconnected or disenchanted with God or the church, and you need to be God's temple, God's (laughs) presence for that person today. Would you just... Lift that person up in your prayers at this moment. God, we thank you that in our worst pain, the Lord is there. In times of health and strength, the Lord is there. In our greatest joy, the Lord is there. In our deepest sorrow, the Lord is there. In our present, the Lord is there. In our future, the Lord is already there. When our cup runs over with joy, the Lord is there. And when it's empty and dry, the Lord is there. In our best and holiest acts of kindness and justice and caring, the Lord is there. And in our worst sins and disobedience, the Lord is there. In our prosperity, the Lord is there. In our unmet needs, the Lord is there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And you keep us longing for that time in your presence when it will be so real and so vivid and so constant forever because the best thing about glory with you is that the Lord is there. We love you and thank you that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand with me. Often during this service, we confess our faith. During Ezekiel, we have been confessing our sin. So one more time, would you join me in the prayer that is printed in your bulletin as we reflect back on Ezekiel's challenge to our own distance from God and as we embrace again the Lord Jesus Christ, the temple of God by whose sacrifice we are freed and by whose Holy Spirit we can experience the presence of God. Please join me in unison. Holy and Heavenly Father, I hear the words rebellion, defiance, and idolatry. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions, the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom that comes only when I admit my guilt before you. Amen. Just a moment for silent confession. On the authority of the word of God, I declare to you what's written in the word of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.